Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. This is Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we are back in Washington, D.C. at the national finals of the annual Fiscal Challenge Competition. This is where teams representing colleges all over the country compete against each other, presenting their plans to reduce the national debt as a percentage of the economy, raise revenue, cut spending, and ensure the solvency of Social Security and Medicare. Basically, put the federal budget on a fiscally sustainable path and do it with a plan that actually has a chance of passing in Congress. Certainly a tall order. So we were there last week when this took place, and you will hear from a number of the teams competing this year. It's always terrific hearing the policy ideas of young people and very reassuring to know that they are thinking about our future challenges and taking them seriously. We will also hear from time to time on today's program from Sita Slavov, a professor at the Shar School of Public Policy at George Mason University, who served as one of the fiscal challenge judges this year. I always think it's great to see young people interested in these issues um, because these are issues that they have a huge stake in. Fiscal responsibility is similar to environmental issues where, you know, these young folks really have a stake in the, the... world that they're going to inherit and you know folks like me um, don't necessarily are not necessarily incentivized to to do the right thing you know i think it's great to see so much interest among young people and um they've really grappled with some difficult issues you know and i think you know something economists say all the time is like you can't significantly improve the long-term fiscal outlook just by cutting waste, fraud, and abuse, right? You have to really um, do some things that are politically unpopular, and they, they've really grappled with, with those things and, and made some hard choices. Yeah, that seemed to me to be one of the things that they all had really interesting ideas, and some of them have some uh, pretty creative ideas yeah. that I yeah. wanted to ask you about. But there was this lingering question in my mind of this might be really great on a spreadsheet or really great in theory, but what's the practical chances that something like this would have to actually become you know, enacted in your discussions with them or in, in their presentations? How much of uh, a factor did you think that they considered in terms of the political feasibility? Um, all of the teams had considered political feasibility, um, and, and so so they, they they did present kind of an analysis of of what they thought was more or less politically feasible, and we as judges specifically asked them about that. So, you know, the teams had certainly thought about it, but I, I, you know, I sort of have the same question in that. Um, you know, if you ask economists, most of us would say a carbon tax is a great idea. And in fact, I think most of these teams proposed a carbon tax. I don't know if that's politically, if that's going to happen. Um, I, I don't know what the, you know, I don't think there's a very high chance of that, that going through. 
to the extent that it raises revenue, it's not discouraging the behavior that you want to discourage. And to the extent that it discourages the behavior, it's not raising revenue. So, so you do kind of have that, that those two competing goals there. That was Professor Sita Slavov of George Mason University, who served as a judge for the fiscal challenge. We'll hear more from her in a bit, but for now, let's turn to the students. The winner of this year's fiscal challenge competition was the team from Notre Dame University in Indiana. One of our, our major policies that were was a highlight was the abolition of the SALT deduction. That has a huge impact, and it's something that um, Congress currently is actually thinking of doing the opposite. But it's... Um, and just, just for those who don't understand, because yes. I certainly understand it. I, I worked for almost 20 years in Connecticut, which is one of the states that it, it basically allows people who uh, live in high-tax states to write off their uh, state and local taxes as part of their federal exactly. income tax, right? Yes. And so currently, uh, under the 2017 uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it's capped at $10,000. We wanted to abolish it completely, and that would generate uh, an incredible amount of revenue, and by 2053, it would... Uh, uh, reduce the debt to GDP, GDP ratio by roughly about 12 percentage points. And the reason this is such an important policy is because it goes against what Congress is doing currently. And it sort of it sort of sets the tone for our policy, which is that we don't want to just go with the status quo right now. We want to achieve the goal of our policy, which is to reduce the debt to GDP ratio. What were some of the other highlights from your proposal? So our overall uh, proposal theme was green, and we didn't want to just do green in terms of the balance sheet. We also want to be green in terms of the environment. So we had two pretty big environmental policies. One was a, a carbon tax system that we tried to be a little bit more creative in such a way where it would kind of incentivize businesses to cut back on their emissions rather than just taxing them. And then the other kind of part of that was we had a policy to incentivize deer hunting, which was kind of unique and kind of fun. And that was looking at boosting GDP through spending and also um, tax revenue. To the government. Let's talk about that a little bit because that was something I've, I've never seen a proposal like that. <laughs> How'd you come up with that idea? And to uh, borrow a phrase from one of the judges, uh, what's the bang for the buck uh, with the, the deer hunting? Um, how much do you spend and and what do you see in terms of, uh, I don't know, economic and productivity boost out of that? Yeah, so I'm originally from New Jersey where there's a pretty big deer overpopulation problem and in the summer I work as a naturalist and I've done that for the past few years and it's a lot of fun. But there's definitely a lot of issues with um, deer eating plants and then I started doing some research into that for fun and I saw that it was a massive issue with farm yields, things like that, looking deeper into the numbers. Um, we saw that hunting generated over 500,000 jobs per year, even more than that, millions and millions of dollars in tax revenue every year. Um, just on the state and local level and not even looking at the federal level. And we thought, what was a way that we could kind of capitalize on this and also create an environmental policy that appeals to the right, because often they more lean left. And so what do you get in terms of economic benefit from that? What was your estimate? I don't know if you have the numbers off the top of your head, but what was it? What, <laughs> what's a figure that we might use for that? So we calculated it based on an estimated increase in farm yields of about 12%, which was actually a conservative estimate. And we said that it would lead to potentially $34.1 billion increase in revenue and $525 billion increase in GDP. Is that over 30 years? Over 30 years. Wow. Um, let's talk about Social Security. Um, what, was the, what were the outlines of your proposals regarding Social Security? Because now we can actually say uh, the 10-year budget outlook uh, released by the Congressional Budget Office uh, shows the Social Security trust funds going insolvent within the current budget window. So it's coming. This is, this is a serious issue. So what, what was your uh, proposal regarding Social Security? Yeah, so in order to maintain the solvency of Social Security, we 
wanted to um, decrease it to a flat 150% payout of the federal poverty level. And I mean, we understood that this is going to hurt the, um, the highest earners. So in order to balance it, we, are gonna, we were going to allow um, the highest earners to increase the IRA contribution limit um, so they could put more money in privately for their retirement funds. And, and not face taxation on yeah, that, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, did you, when you were looking at Social Security, did you uh, adjust the retirement age at all? Um, we did not, no. That's really interesting. So, the obviously, if you listen to any of the debate in Congress about what to do about Social Security, that's always mentioned as one of the uh, pieces to the solution is to increase the retirement age. That's what was done in the 1980s, the last time the Social Security trust funds were um, close to insolvency. Uh, Not many of the teams here today uh, uh, really tinkered with the retirement age. What's your thinking behind that? I mean, I think we thought it would just be a better approach to, instead of changing the retirement age that had been set for quite long, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, instead of changing that, we decided to go after the payouts because we thought it would be the best way to kind of go after um, the debt and the massive spending that is Social Security and instead give an opportunity for those that are at that retirement age to still get those payouts. And I also think it's uh, raising the retirement age disproportionately harms uh, physical laborers. I think that especially Uh, people who go into the trades and people who do physical labor, uh, their bodies are worn out by the retirement age and raising it would uh, harm them more than it would harm people who are white collared or are doing less physically intense jobs. Additionally, if you look at political uh, feasibility, that's a massive issue when it comes to raising the retirement age. I mean, if you just look at France right now and the situation there, and a lot of the voter base is an older population. Realistically, Congress is an older population, so no one wants that age to go up. So we figured that we really wanted to focus on political feasibility in our presentation with all of our policies, and that played into Social Security a lot. Um, So what about spending? Um, Where did you see uh, the best opportunities to reduce spending or slow the growth of of spending? Who wants to take that one? Um, So at least for the Department of Defense, we've seen, we looked at the the audit opinion of the U.S. government and they had a a very poor review of the Department of Defense's financial management. And plus the U.S. Department of Defense funding is greater than the next nine countries so that was something i mean it's been talked about for forever that like oh we got to decrease um dod spending so we saw that that we could decrease it in a way while still remaining um strong to the threats that the u.s faces the department of defense knows better than we do what they should do with their money so we thought we're going to take um a blanket Um, decrease in budget on one specific appropriation and then within this decrease we just had two policies that just account for 20% of this decrease and then the rest of the 80% the Department of Defense is allowed to do what they want to. I'll also chime in with um, another policy I thought that was pretty creative in how we cut spending which was 
incentivizing the preventative care because Medicare um, costs and spending are high and so instead of just directly cutting Medicare we're incentivizing people to take care of their health and their bodies when it's more cheaper to do so when you're already healthy than when you have like a huge medical disaster and then the government has to shell out for that. Okay, so that's really interesting. I caught that little bit of your uh, presentation or discussion of it. How would you incentivize preventative care? There was something about uh, paying people to actually get some preventative care, right? Yes, it was a hundred dollar um, incentive to get your yearly checkup. And we also have to credit this policy to Jake, who is our team member that wasn't able to be here today because that was his idea and we really liked it. So every single American would get $100 uh, what per year to get their, uh, as an incentive to get their yearly checkup with their physician? They would have to get the yearly checkup before they get the $100, yes. Okay, so, so you're spending quite a bit of money on that, but then do you then estimate that you would reduce spending on programs such as Medicaid, Medicare, uh, federal health spending? Is that, is that what your assumption is? Yeah, we looked at a lot of different research studies from different journals that showed if um, preventative care increased, then you can cut spending on those more expensive things like um, late stage cancer diagnosis. Um, we learned that apparently if you catch diabetes very late, it can lead to amputations, which is something that we didn't know before researching this project. And so those are obviously very expensive medical procedures that we'd hope to avoid. Regarding growing GDP and economic uh, growth, can anybody give me your, your, your top one or two sort of uh, ideas in your proposal that really kind of aimed at uh, economic growth? Because obviously one thing is trying to reduce the debt or uh, slowing the growth of the debt, but the other one is boosting economic growth, um, and that will change that ratio as well. I think um, increasing immigration was a big one, especially with the U.S. population growth rate slowing and we like have labor shortages, people feel the impacts of those. Um, our immigration policy really encourages that growth, but then we also paired it with stuff like funding and investing in border infrastructure to support that increase in immigration. And then like we mentioned in our presentation, we linked it to more job opportunities with deregulated occupational licensing and also our urban zoning reform so that all these new immigrants have housing. That was the fiscal challenge winning team from the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. Fiscal challenge judge Professor Sita Slavov of George Mason University liked their proposal to boost federal support for deer hunting nationwide as a way to increase crop yields and farm sector productivity. I thought that was one of, one of the most creative ones I've heard, and um, you know I appreciate the team's reasoning behind it. In that you know this is an environmental policy that could appeal to conservatives, and it doesn't seem like it has a huge cost. It might have this large benefit, and um, so so I appreciated their reasoning behind it. This is not my area of expertise. Um, but but I thought that was um, that was great that they're thinking so um, um, so creatively. Um, I guess another team had proposed a market share tax, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so the idea being to raise revenue and to impose a tax on um, you, you know to, to try to try to discourage um, you know firms from gaining large market share. So it's kind of an antitrust um, um, goal. 
a number of these teams proposed cutting the defense budget. What was your <laughs> what was your impression of uh, not specifically some of their proposals, but that, that that was sort of a broad theme among a lot of the teams? Yeah, um, I thought that was interesting that that so many teams proposed cutting defense. They did face some hard questions about what the implications were given the threats that we face today from, from say, the war in Ukraine um, and and other sort of geopolitical issues. So 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 yeah, the, those those things did come up. You'll you'll get some definite pushback on on this. And you know, I think and this is, this is where, like I said, they were grappling with some really difficult issues. I mean getting to um, a sustainable fiscal situation is going to require um, doing some things that are just not politically popular. That was Sita Slavov, professor at George Mason University's Shar School of Public Policy, a judge for this year's Fiscal Challenge Collegiate Competition. We next hear from one of the other teams with an innovative idea on revenue. That's the team from Princeton University in New Jersey. Growth was one of our underlying principles for all of our policies. Um, two of our biggest policies that kind of move towards that growth are a universal early education program, so free preschool. Um, there have been a number of studies that show that for every dollar invested in early childhood education, we net back about $7 into GDP output for that child, which is obviously a huge increase, um, as well as increased parent productivity when children are cared for. Um, for every additional child in preschool, you see about a 4.5 increase in workforce participation rate for parents, um, additional things like that. And we also focused on prison and drug reform, which would massively increase our productivity um, and my colleague can speak more to that if she would like to. Um, yeah, while it was like technically one of our uh, spending cut proposals, um, I actually have become very passionate about like prison reform through this uh, project because it's not only cutting federal spending for incarcerating people on unnecessarily for decades on end and, and if we cut prison sentencing just by 20%, we would literally save $13 trillion in the next 30 years, but also that would lead to huge growth in the potential output and GDP for formerly incarcerated individuals um, that can contribute so much to society. They are American citizens. They Once they're rehabilitated, they can go back into the workforce and contribute so much and lead to so much GDP growth. What are uh, some of your revenue ideas? Because that's the other piece. We're going to probably need more revenue in some way or another uh, in order to help us out. You, you, you mentioned um, increases in payroll tax for Medicare and Social Security. Any other important revenue raisers that we should pay attention to in your proposal? Yeah, so I think one of our most creative or novel proposals was a market share tax. Um, currently, there's no exact uh, official numerical boundary for when market dominance is achieved when we're talking about things like monopolies. The FTC says that at about over about 30%, we start to see anti-competitive practices, and at above 50% market share, we can see monopolistic power. But that threshold is really hazy and um, quite high, and it leads to a lot of difficulties in antitrust litigation. And so we proposed a policy that would kind of target those companies that are above 30% market share before they're broken up, um, which allows for more nuance in antitrust litigation and also can serve as a massive source of revenue for the government. That's really interesting. So what was your projection on what you could bring in uh, with that market share tax? 
Yeah, so we estimated about $3.3 trillion over the next 30 years, um, and we think that that's a pretty conservative estimate. Our estimates were only based on nine major companies that are currently undergoing or have recently undergone some sort of antitrust litigation. Um, and so there's a number of other companies that would also, we think, fall within that 30 to 50% range um, that would add additional revenue to this um, that we would be able to bring into the federal government. But we wanted to focus just on those companies um, that we certainly had backing for the having undue market power first. And what did your team do with the defense budget? We are on track to have a $1 trillion <laughs> annual defense budget. It's not that far away. Some of the teams here have talked about cutting defense spending in some way. What did you, how, what did you do with defense? Yeah, so I mean, uh, defense spending is the largest sort of um, category of discretionary spending. Um, and so if you're looking at cutting spending, I mean, it's really hard to not touch defense. Um, we really uh, wanted to not sacrifice political feasibility. Um, and so we looked for more sort of creative ways to reduce spending. Um, and so what we came up with was instead of looking at, you know, individual programs, individual projects, you know, procurement and cutting that, um, and sort of like targeting specific things, we sort of looked at a sort of broad strategy view. You know, we, we proposed a, sh a shifting of our military strategy um, from one of deterrence by denial to one of deterrence by punishment. And the, the change there is um, deterrence by punishment. It emphasizes more longer strike capabilities. Um, it emphasizes the role of, you know, like economic and diplomatic responses to military action. Um, it really puts pressure on allies to also step up their own funding. I mean, uh, in the last 20 years, um, many know that most NATO members actually haven't been meeting their uh, defense spending obligations. I think it's about 2% of GDP, and a lot of countries are below that still. Um, and so, um, and so, it, all of this comes together um, to, it's for a, like an overall strategy shift that would actually sh save about, uh, I believe the number was about four trillion dollars over 30 years, um, and uh, but with no change in our ability to project force across the world, um, and no change to the to our overall. Um, ability to you know assert power you're listening to facing the future this is av harris filling in for your regular host bob bixby we'll hear more from the fiscal challenge competition in washington dc after a few short messages Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Av Harris filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. Let's get back to the Fiscal Challenge competition in Washington, D.C., where college students from all over the country were presenting their plans to put the federal budget on a more sustainable path. One of the judges for this year's Fiscal Challenge finals is Professor Sita Slavov at George Mason University's Shar School of Public Policy. One thing she noticed from this year's teams is when looking at how to ensure the solvency of Social Security, none of the teams proposed raising the retirement age as has been done in the past. I was also surprised that many teams um, did not want to cut benefits. And, you know, we're talking like 18 to 22 year olds who have you know, they're, most of their careers ahead of them. They're going to be paying payroll taxes for a long time, yet they chose to go with raising payroll taxes generally to fund benefits. I, I think that there, there was one team that had proposed switching to a flat benefit that was slightly lower, so it was like 150% of the poverty line or something like that. So, so that, you know, I thought that was a significant um, change to the benefit formula. 
Um, but, but yeah, you're right. Um, it, maintaining benefits and paying for, for them through increased payroll taxes um, seemed to be pretty popular. One of the other things I noticed a few of the teams doing was that in terms of uh, boosting economic growth and GDP, a number of them looked at some investments mm -hmm. in education and yeah. specifically early childhood education yeah. Yeah. and were able to show on paper some great economic benefits yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I was surprised that the number of the teams chose that, but I don't know, I kind of find it interesting that this group of students is thinking about yeah. education for young children. Yeah. yeah, no, I thought that was interesting too. There were several proposals to do that. Um, you know, I think the, the you know, these are, these are programs that would require an upfront, upfront cost and um, would hopefully pay off in the long run. I think that's risky, and I think the, the teams admitted the, the risk associated with that. Um, you know, the, the, the whole notion that this will pay for itself, it's hopeful. I mean, we, maybe it will, um, but, but maybe it won't. That was Professor Sita Slavov of George Mason University. We'll hear more from her in a bit. For now, let's hear from the Fiscal Challenge competition team from Northeastern University in Boston, who had an innovative approach to reducing federal health care spending, which is an enormous part of the budget and a major contributor to our national debt. I came across this policy brief by some Yale economists that said, like, you know, we can leverage AI in these really unique and interesting ways. And one of the ways that we can do that is by automatically enrolling people in narrower plans. And so what happens is people in narrower plans, because people don't change doctors that frequently, what you can what you can do is put them in plans that just contain their usual providers and not much else. And because of that, you pay less for the insurance plans because narrower network plans have lower costs. That's part of why you are paying less is because you're getting a narrower network. But at the same time, you don't really experience adverse health outcomes if you manage to get all your usual providers and patient um, satisfaction isn't really affected. So what you can do is leverage AI in this really unique and interesting way in order to keep people's health benefits, outcomes, and satisfaction the same while really just cutting costs for Medicaid. And by able, if we're able to implement this expansion like throughout the states, um, you can really see a lot of long-term benefit for this. So it's a way of reducing healthcare spending um, yeah. without really impacting people's health care all that much. Yeah, I think a big problem that we see, um, particularly in the U.S., is that we spend a lot of money and don't get much in return. Um, our healthcare system relative to other high-income countries is pretty bloated. And so what we always look for is ways to kind of slim it down and make these processes more streamlined. And this seemed like a really great way to do that. Now, you did propose a carbon tax. Yes. Um, so does anybody want to talk about that? Uh, what, are you, what are you targeting? How do you do it? How much money does that bring in? And what might some of the other benefits be under your proposal? Oh, yes, of course. So our carbon tax, it, we uh, tax carbon emissions at $50 a ton with a 6% yearly growth rate on that $50 a ton. So that is more than some other teams have proposed, but we believe it's the right amount. Um, it'll reduce emissions by approximately 20% by, I believe, 2050. Um, so that's a significant reduction in emissions, which is just good for the environment. Um, we believe that a carbon tax should be capturing the negative externalities 
of carbon emissions. And so our carbon tax is designed to do that specifically. While we also appreciate the uh, recent passage of, for example, the IRA, which funds green energy sources, we believe that you also need to address the problem from both sides. So capturing the externalities with a carbon tax. And I believe our revenue from the carbon tax would be approximately 350 billion annually on average over the 30 year time horizon. So let me ask you something about that because it seems like you've got two kind of conflicting um, uh, trends in that, right? Yes, you get more revenue because you're taxing carbon and people using large amounts of uh, carbon and emitting a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere would, would pay more as, as polluters. But on the other hand, if you're reducing emissions, um, aren't you also reducing the amount of revenue that you're going to be uh, the, you know, gaining from that? Yes, we are reducing emissions. Um, we believe that this isn't really a conflict in the sense that our goal is to reduce emissions as much as it is to reduce um, or as much as it is to generate revenue because both of those are cost saving measures right so when we reduce emissions uh, our emission reductions estimate uh, we, we estimate that we could save approximately three trillion or at one point we were estimating an even higher number um, in public and private savings combined so the emissions reductions cause additional savings. So the higher the emissions reductions, the greater the savings, even if that contributes to lost revenue in the tax. And the tax still does generate a significant amount of revenue. And so that $3 trillion in savings you're talking about is from what the estimates of less uh, yes. natural disasters and that kind of thing? Yes, we use the social cost of carbon provided by the Biden administration. I believe it's approximately $51 per metric ton of carbon. And um, that basically accounts for wildfires, droughts. Um, I believe the Biden administration does a worldwide estimate. Um, so it's public and private savings for the world, but it's still a significant amount of revenue saved for America too. You talked about some cuts in defense spending and it's very interesting because we're on track to have a $1 trillion annual defense budget. It's probably in the next couple of years or so that might happen. A lot of that defense spending, defense contractors have been very, very smart about uh, basing a lot of their operations in congressional districts. So it kind of guarantees a lot of political support uh, for a, a very high level of defense spending because it means a lot of jobs, um, a lot of jobs and it's manufacturing and it's high-end manufacturing. So. It's not easy to cut defense spending, especially in Massachusetts, right, with uh, Raytheon also in Connecticut, too. Yeah. How do you propose doing that? You know, what's your, what's your target number, um, and, um, and how would you propose reallocating defense spending? Yeah, this is a really good question because both sides of the aisle agree that there's rising military threats and also place priority on the military. So it's it may seem difficult, but if you look at our policy, we reduce the F-35 program $5 billion annually for 10 years. So it's $50 billion reduction over 10 years. Relatively small, as you said, it's a about a trillion dollar budget or approaching a trillion dollar budget. So if you're a um, let's say military proponent, you can rest easy knowing most of your budget is secure. Secondly, regarding the job situation and impacting defense contractors, we're only changing the F-35 program. And right now the F-35 is led by Lockheed Martin. They promised the F-35 in 2001, and they said it'll cost about $200 billion and we'll get it to you in the middle of the 2010s. It's still not fully ready, and it's about it's a little over $400 billion. So they're, well, they're doing great from the F-35 program. And if they're missing about $30 billion in purchasing from the Department of Defense, I'm really okay with that, particularly since the battle readiness of the F-35 today isn't there as the Government Accountability Office has literally uh, warned in early 2023 
that they haven't finished the reliability test. So why would we purchase something that's not reliable yet? What about uh, Social Security? That's a big one. What would you do to make uh, Social Security trust fund more solvent? We're not very far away from, from that happening. And if, that, if those trust funds go insolvent for Social Security and, and for Medicare, um, people could see significant benefit reductions um, right away. And it's something that um, for you and your generation, would kind of be important to, to have that around when you get to retirement age. So what about Social Security? How would you tackle that? Yeah, so I think Social Security is really an important issue as we have really not done anything. Um, despite that, Social Security is definitely a hot-button issue. Um, and it's really hard to do Social Security policy. People don't want to raise taxes ever, which makes sense. Um, but also, nobody wants to lower their Social Security benefits. Um, so you get this really interesting problem with Social Security, where it's hard to do kind of one side or the other. Um, despite that, we think that raising um, some taxes and implementing a donut hall tax to kind of increase the amount of taxable revenue that um, falls under Social Security purview is probably the best way to go. So what we do is we would raise the taxable rate by 1.8% and then implement a donut hole tax over $400,000. So what that means is you would pay social, um, income tax for Social Security up to the current limit of $160,000 a year. Then you don't pay a dollar more until you start making over $400,000 a year, in which case you're taxed on every dollar above $400,000. Um, what that would do is increase Social Security solvency beyond the kind of the 75-year time horizon that's commonly used as a benchmark for it. And I think that's really important because the entire premise of Social Security is that you pay into it when you're young, knowing that you're going to be able to draw benefits when you're older. Once we fail to keep that promise and say, you're going to pay into it now, but you won't get benefits, kind of the whole way that the system works falls apart. So sometimes it's unpopular to do it, but Social Security solvency is something that really should be addressed, and our policy manages to do that um, in the long term. Do you do anything with the retirement age in order to help the solvency problem? We do not. Um, unfortunately, kind of the retirement age in the United States is already pretty high compared to our current life expectancy. Low-income states in the United States um, have life expectancies of around 67. So we don't see the point of raising the retirement age to what some people have proposed of like 67 or 68, because then you don't actually get to really enjoy retirement if you're in those people. We believe that everybody should be able to enjoy retirement. You're listening to Facing the Future. This is Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. We'll hear more from this year's Fiscal Challenge competition in Washington, D.C. after a few short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Av Harris filling in for your regular host, Bob Bixby. Let's get back to some more of the college students competing in this year's Fiscal Challenge that took place just a few days ago in Washington, D.C. Next up is the team from three campuses in Indiana, Notre Dame, St. Mary's, and Holy Cross. We really centered our proposals kind of around four main ideas, and we looked for areas within the economy where we could boost productivity. So we proposed increasing immigration so we could strengthen the workforce and have more workers uh, given the current labor shortage in the United States. And then we also propose policies like high-speed rail, which would improve public transportation and productivity within our urban centers, which are our most productive uh, areas of the economy. And then reducing housing restrictions so we could build more housing because uh, there's also a severe housing shortage. But at the same time, we also looked at 
spending and expenditures areas where we could make cuts or we could raise taxes to fund shortfalls. So for example, for Medicare, we proposed a 2% percentage point increase in the Medicare tax to have it fully funded for the next generation of retirees. And we proposed a cost of living adjustment for Social Security to better reflect uh, rising prices. So those are just some of the policies we proposed that would both increase the GDP or decrease the debt uh, to build a more sustainable debt to GDP ratio. All right, so let me talk about immigration um, because that was one of the things you mentioned. Uh, what, how, do you, uh, how do you propose to uh, increase immigration or oh, uh, take that? So yeah. right now the current U.S. currently admits 1.2 million immigrants a year and we propose to expand that to 1.8 million immigrants and through a series of uh, 1.2 million of that share would be uh, given through visas and then 600,000 temporary and student visas. And then also our immigration reform was largely creating a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented immigrants already here. And through that, um, in effect, both policies and some kind of create a um, pathway so that um, many more Americans are like introduced into um, the markets and therefore like productivity goes higher and like uh, we have a stronger labor force participation. Absolutely, so growing the labor force, more economic growth, uh, increasing GDP. Um, so let's talk about spending cuts. Um, were there are there some significant uh, proposed spending cuts that um, that you think we should uh, we should be aware of in your proposal? One of the policies we talked about was our defense policy, which was um, it was a blanket reduction of 1.1 trillion um, over the first 10 years, and then after that, indexing it to inflation for 20 years after that. Um, even though there are geopolitical tensions and the Russia-Ukraine war is definitely a concern, we think that a blanket reduction as opposed to an itemized reduction will allow for um, the Department of Defense to allocate their funds as they see fit. And this blanket reduction would also be lower than the two largest reductions that came prior to it um, since the Korean War. So we still think that, although yes, uh, we do need to be cognizant of the geopolitical um, state of the world around us that um, this would be a good move for the United States. Could you get it through Congress? Could you get a $1 trillion cut in uh, defense spending over the next decade through Congress? Or how do, you, how do you think about that, you know, like politically? How does that I sit? Mean, we recognize that military spending is a, cutting it would be a very divisive topic, but I think if you look at our cut and you compare U.S. military spending to other countries, we're still going to be spending more than the next, you know, five or six countries combined on military spending, even after our cut. So if you kind of frame it that way, I, I think you might get some more political support, uh, especially if you're ensuring that maybe other programs are going to be well-funded, like Medicare and Social Security, as a result of this cut. Another team competing in this year's fiscal challenge competition was from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, who took the challenge of generating more federal revenue head-on. Our revenue boosters were mostly tax policy. I think we had eliminating itemized deductions, we had um, a VAT, we had an FTT, and we had the largest one, which is the carbon tax. The itemized deductions is a very intricate policy, in my opinion, that was very well-educated, and I feel the rest of my members will very much agreed on that. It was something, one of the first policies that we actually stumbled upon, I'd say, and that was when, during our, like, you know, early February, that's when we started actually exploring that. Um, yeah, but with the other policies, it was mostly, mostly just very traditional, very strongly rooted economic theories that are well understood by the economic community. If you were to ask any economist what a VAT is, he would, or they would tell you, they would know what a VAT is, or, they, or the FTT, which is a very, not politically contentious, but a very well explored topic as well in general. 
So let me ask you about those two, because I'm not an economist. Uh, I know what a VAT is. Um, I've paid it in other countries. Uh, It's a value-added tax. But can you describe uh, what that would be, how you would implement it? And uh, I don't know if you have the figure of how much revenue you could bring in uh, through implementing that, uh, the VAT. And I'm also going to ask the same about the FTT, because I have no idea what that is. Absolutely. So the VAT is a very standard tax. It's basically, say you want to buy candy. You want to buy a M&Ms for two dollars and thirty cents, right? Once you implement a VAT, like say in this country, like somewhere like Singapore, where there's a seven percent VAT, you would be now paying around two fifty or so. Very simply, they integrate the VAT or additional tax into your purchasing price, basically, and that money basically gets rerouted towards the government. The intention and is purely just to generate revenue and, and create a general tax and consumption in general. Um, feel like that would explain it yeah and how much uh, through the vat that you uh, implement in your proposal how much would that bring in i think the number was around 17 trillion or around 18 trillion over over 30 years over 30 years yes i mean (laughs) um yeah but there's definitely more optimistic numbers there's a ted cruz policy from 2016 it was very popular which was um proposing the elimination of almost every other form of taxation including a income tax and instead imposing a 20% flat tax, which, again, take as you will. Um, that would require, that would generate around 21, $22 trillion over a 10-year period, which would be massive in the long term. That would be around $50 trillion or so. Realistically, we did consider these types of policies. We consulted with you know several uh, members of our team who are, who are very well educated, especially in the field of economics. Um, but we just felt, felt that a more conservative policy that is more grounded in actual economic theory, not just based on some sort of political extreme necessarily. And I feel like to that degree, that's why we chose a VAT that was somewhat traditional. And I feel like we feel very strongly about our policies. Now, what is an FTT? So an FTT is a financial transaction tax. So let's just say if I'm buying and selling stocks on some brokerage firm, I would have to pay that tax every single time I am trading my stock. So our policy was sort of we have uh, most not that much, but like a very small amount just on stocks, and like 0.1% on bonds and 0.005% on like other things like derivative like options and such. And sort of the idea behind that is we already have sort of this problem in the market where a bunch of people are trading stocks, bonds just way too fast and it's causing a lot of volatility. And if instead you tax it a little bit, A, you have this less volatility, which is better in terms of preventing like financial crises, as well as you just have all this revenue that you're generating, which was one thing that we thought was like both by people on both sides of the aisle support it, and it also just made sense as a tax. And how much revenue would you bring in uh, doing those kinds of small taxes on many financial transactions? I think it was $7 trillion that you'd bring in over a 50-year period. So a 30-year period. Very interesting. Okay, so in focusing on economic growth, what were some of uh, your proposals to, to really crank up the economy and grow GDP? So our four main GDP growth proposals were support for underprivileged students in higher education who would otherwise not be able to finish their degree due to uh, running out of the funds to do so simply, an expansion to transportation infrastructure funding. Um, I think our biggest policy by far would be research and development subsidization by the government. And we also had a policy on renewable energy growth, um, investment in Uh, production and investment tax credits for wind and solar energy, respectively. Hearing all of these young people put forward thoughtful, credible research plans that could actually put the federal budget on a more sustainable path is very impressive. 
George Mason University Shar School of Public Policy Professor Sita Slavov, one of the judges for this year's fiscal challenge competition in Washington, D.C., says another word comes to mind when seeing all the students compete. I think it's really hopeful to see these these young people interested in these issues. But of course, this is a selected group. These are folks who chose to enter a fiscal challenge. Um, what I would hope is that they would tell their friends and their their classmates about these issues. You know, you see a lot of young people who engage in activism around environmental issues. And I think it's really similar here where, you know, it'd be nice to see some young young people really engage in activism within their, their peer group um, and, and more generally on, on these kinds of issues. Things can go go wrong very suddenly. Um, you know, you've got a high debt to GDP ratio. If there is some kind of economic crisis, there's less room to maneuver. You know, so another a repeat of, of the COVID crisis in 2020, um, there's, there's less room for the government to maneuver. And um, there is this increased risk of a financial crisis um, if investors start doubting the ability of the federal government to, to uh, to pay off its debt. Um, so, so things can go bad um, pretty, pretty quickly. Um, you know, I mean, I would say, I, I've seen people say similar things about, about climate change, right? Well, well, people have been predicting disaster and nothing's happened. And well, it's, it's, it's a long-term thing. I thought there were some really creative proposals in there that I will have to think a little bit more about. Um, and um, I am just so glad to see uh, young people have this sort of, they, they have a very solid understanding of the issues, including the details of the programs, and it, and it just makes me hopeful for the future. And we will let Professor Slavov have the last word. We've been listening to college teams from across the country competing in the finals of the National Fiscal Challenge held recently in Washington, D.C. That's all the time we have for this week. Join us again next week for another edition of Facing the Future. Thank you.